Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, Nikos. Thank you, everybody here. Um, I want to thank especially uh, Hervé, who was responsible uh, for, bringing here, for bringing me here. And, uh, of course, to Nahed, who is responsible to put up this event this evening, um, at which I'm very happy to talk. As Nikon mentioned, I start, I'm a game theorist. I'm, I'm doing research primarily in decision-making and I try to understand how people make decisions and transform this understanding uh, uh, quite often into practical ideas that can serve organizations. And, um, you know, game theory is to some extent opposite, the opposite from emotions. And um, uh, I've been also for several years the director of an important center called the Center for the Study of Rationality that accommodates people from different disciplines, uh, starting with uh, economics, but management, science, also uh, psychology, mathematics, computer science, uh, sociology, people who are coming from different disciplines. Uh, each of them is looking differently in this, uh, at this topic um, that is called rationality. And after serving five years as the director of this center, which, which was established about 20 years ago by Nobel laureate Bob Bauman, talking a lot of people from different disciplines, I decided that I want to put together my insights about rationality, combining ideas from my own research and also ideas that I got from my colleagues in, uh, in other disciplines. To try to understand, to, to try to explain what's rationality. And when I started thinking about rationality, I noticed that the best way to explain rationality is to try to understand better the role of the thing that we uh, regard as the total opposite of rationality, which is emotions, okay? Uh, I already done at that stage some research with, co with collaborators on, uh, on emotions, primarily with psychologists. And um, when I started writing the book, I, I started it with basically um, trying to refute to very common conventional wisdom uh, uh, among people in the past used to be also quite uh, established among researchers, but, but these are very wrong uh, ideas about emotions. One of them is the idea, let me put, uh, uh, let me skip uh, some of the uh, marketing stuff and go directly uh, to the topic, the, fa the first conventional wisdom, wrong conventional wisdom, is, is the idea that we have two boxes in the brain, one which is responsible for rationality and the other for emotions. And whenever we are up to make decision, they start quarreling, fighting with one another, and eventually one of them is winning. And if it's the left part that wins, we make an emotional decision. If it's the right part that wins, we make an 
a rational decision, um, and that's how we are making decisions. This is a very wrong picture of how we make decisions. We don't have two boxes in the brain that are responsible to one to rationality and one uh, for emotion. In fact, the, all, uh, all our brain is engaged in activity which is both emotional and, and rational, okay? And basically every decision that we make invoke both rationality and emotions. Down to the most uh, material decision that you can think of, if you enter the supermarket and you see several products in front of you, you, you throw your hand to grab one of them and put in your car. The final, actually the final impulse that make you choose product A against product B is an emotional one. It, it comes together with um, uh, rational, rational or analytical uh, thinking, where you take the product, you look at the price, you sort of ask yourself whether this is a reasonable price, you look at its content, you ask yourself whether it's healthy for you or not, okay? And, and these analytical um, activity triggers an emotional reaction the triggers, again, motivation to ask more analytical questions and vice versa, okay? And eventually, this, this en entire discussion between rationality and emotions ends up with a decision, okay? So it's, not, it's very much different than, than this picture. If at all, it would, it would be more similar to this one when the two of them act together, okay? This is the first wrong conventional wisdom. The second wrong conventional wisdom, which many of us, including sometimes I myself, um, are making, is, the, is the, the, uh, the idea or the thought that it would have been much better if in many of our decisions, especially those interactive ones, we let only the rationality speak and shut down the emotional part of, my, of, our, uh, of our brain. Don't know if you remember um, uh, Star Trek that had a very prominent figure, Mr. Spock. And this Mr. Spock, who came from outer space, was actually capable to turn off his emotional being and make decision only based on rationality, only based on analysis. And we very often have this craving to be like Mr. Spock. Okay? And this is also wrong. It turns out, and this is, this is actually uh, where my title is coming from, why our emotions are more rational than we think. It turns out, that our emotions, not only that they don't uh, destroy or distort, in most cases, our decision-making, they are facilitating it. They are helping them. Okay? And, and even more so when it, when it comes to decisions that we call interactive. I, by the way, make a distinction in my book between what I call autonomous emotions and interactive emotions. There are emotions that we can experience without having somebody in front of us. 
We don't need anybody else to experience these emotions. This could be, for instance, fear. We can be afraid of diseases, of natural uh, disasters. We don't have to be afraid of a person or sorrow. We can be uh, uh, deeply sad about something, but it's not towards anybody, okay? In contrast, many, many of our, most of our emotions are interactive. Think of anger, for instance. You can't experience anger unless you are facing somebody. Anger is directed at some, somebody, okay? So is also empathy. You feel empathy towards somebody. Sympathy towards somebody. Love towards somebody. Envy or jealous. You have, to, you have to have somebody to be envy at, okay? All these emotions, okay? Embarrassment, right? You have to be embarrassed vis-a-vis uh, -vis somebody, okay? All these emotions I call um, interactive emotion because they are require somebody else to experience them, okay? And the advantage that... Um, the literature has discovered in these emotions is much greater than in these other emotions that I call autonomous. Because in interactive emotions, unlike autonomous emotions that affect only our decision, interactive emotions also affect the other party decision. Okay, and in such, they can be very, very effective. Let me give you examples or two examples of research that has been conducted already about 30 years ago by psychologists in the US, in California, and identified really um, um, uh, very interesting advantage of anger. We, we tend to think about anger as something we should, we should not experience. We, sh we shouldn't allow ourselves to be angry, okay? And it's wrong. Let me give you, uh, uh, as I said, two examples of, of, of these experiments. One of them involves um, a laboratory experiment where you bring a bunch of uh, subjects to um, conduct negotiations in pairs. So you divide them in pairs, okay? You bring them into the lab, okay? You give each pair a certain amount of money. You describe the situation, which is you make it a little bit asymmetric so that they won't feel compelled to divide the money equally between themselves. And you let them 20 minutes to negotiate. But before you bring them into the lab, you take half of them and induce them to be a little bit more angry than the rest while they start the experiment. How do you do that? There is a very simple technique uh, that psychologists use, which is to ask the subject to write down on a piece of paper in a very detailed way, a very annoying example, a very annoying experience uh, that he or she um, have gone through, uh, has gone through in the last, let's say, one or two years. And I've seen in the lab uh, at, at Lancaster University, our psychologists implementing this procedure. It's amazing. They start writing down extremely calm, right? You, not you notice nothing on their face. But as, as they proceed with the writing, you see them getting nervous. 
By the time they wrote half a page, you see them really red. Okay? And it affects people. You, 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 in running such experiments, you actually have to make sure that they are not getting too much angry because we want to really moderate this effect. And then they got into the lab, and these experimenters did something very simple. They just wrote down how much money each of them made during the negotiations when they walked out of the lab. And what they found out is that those people who went into the lab with a higher level of anger, those people also left the lab with a higher level of money. Okay? So it's an example in which, to some extent, anger could buy you something. Okay? We, we, in a minute, we'll try to, uh, to understand where is it coming from. Okay? Why were they stronger to some extent than those people who came in uh, calm and moderate and super rational? Okay? The other experiment is not about um, negotiations. It's more about uh, debating. So you take these subjects and you bring them again into the lab divide them to pairs, and uh, first of all, ask their opinion on a variety of political issues, such as the death penalty or, um, or uh, immigration or whatever. And then you take two individuals which have a very um, uh, polar views about the issue, and you ask them to negotiate, and you write down their arg argument. And what you find out that those people who were induced to be slightly more angry than the other are more capable of, of making, of, uh, of uh, distinguishing between relevant argument and irrelevant argument to the topic. Okay? This is, in, in, in fact, less surprising because we know that anger is raising the level of adrenaline in our body, and as such, it makes us more alert, more um, conscious, uh, more focused. Uh, but, but the previous example is perhaps more surprising. And now the question is, where is it coming from? And the answer to this question is a very important concept in, a, in social sciences, especially in economics. Uh, due to Thomas Schelling, is a Nobel laureate. And this concept is called commitment. Let me try to explain. The idea of commitment says that often when you interact with somebody else, tying your hands behind your back allows you a strategic advantage. This, again, sounds quite paradoxically. How can you tie your hands behind your back and be better off. I think the best example that I heard on this was from a friend of mine who, who is an historian. He was telling me that when the Roman troops uh, about 2,000 two years ago were chasing the German tribes across the Rhine River, what they used to do to strengthen their position is to burn the bridge behind themselves, okay? By burning the bridge behind the troops, you actually limit the opportunities, the options. 
that the troops have. But of course, this is raises, to some extent, the strategic benefit of the Romans, because by burning the bridges, you can actually signal the other party, listen, we don't have any way to escape back. Okay? Our only way is forward. And you should take this into account. Okay? This is a way of tying your hands behind your back that allows you a strategic advantage. And emotions, to some extent, do exactly the same. Okay? Let's think about this scenario where two individuals negotiate. Okay? And let's presume that one of them is, is fully rational, perfectly rational, whereas the other one is more responsive in terms of emotions. He can actually, he can be glad, uh, thankful, he can be angry, okay? Now, consider a situation in which the other party is saying, no, I'm going to give you only 10% of the pie. Okay? Uh, and if you, if you don't want to take it, uh, 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 you can go. You can leave the room. If the other party who receives such an offer is fully rational, it makes sense to make such a th th threat, right? Because um, getting 10% of the pie is, 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 uh, is still better than getting nothing, okay? On the, other, on the other hand, if, if the other party is, is more receptive to, to is, is, is more affected by emotions, is capable of getting angry or insulted, for example, then the other party can say, listen, I know that by walking out, I'm going to be worse off, but I'm so pissed off, I'm so angry about your position here that I'm nevertheless going to walk out of the table without a deal, okay, in spite of the fact that financially I'm worse off, okay? In such a case, the greedy party will have no opportunity but to be more moderate, but, may, but making a more reasonable offer, an offer that can be accepted, okay? So by reacting, by using emotions, very often, we are able to demonstrate, we are, we are able to demonstrate that our hands are tied behind our back. Although this seems irrational to, to reject the offer, okay, in terms of how much money I'm going to end up with, my, my, my hands are tied behind my back. I'm in a mental state that does not allow me to accept this humiliating offer, okay? Even if my brain, my rational brain tells me you should get it, I'm telling you, I'm not in a mental state that can accept it. That potentially can offer substantial advantage. Okay? And, and um, one important thing that, that I always warn my, my readers and, and, uh, and my audience is not uh, uh, to view this, this approach as a statement that any emotional reaction 
is, a, is, a, is good for us, right? They are, and in fact, I have in my book a chapter which, which talks about irrational emotions. Sometimes emotions, and especially ang being angry, right? Anger can be detrimental to us. If it's not tuned up to serve our interest, if it's too extreme, right? If it's, if it's uh, deviating from social standard and acceptability, it could be hurtful. But what my point is, is not that anger is good for us always, but being perfectly rational is typically bad for us. Perfectly rational meaning not being able to uh, invoke emotions in our decision making. Okay? So what I want, what, what I want to do now, um, I'm, I'm going to give you another example which is quite startling. Uh, um, much of our advantages, much of the advantages of our emotional traits or emotional uh, inclinations is, is designed, in fact, by evolution, right? We were, we, we were designed by, by means of selection to react emotionally because it serves us in some way or another. Fear is, is the most immediate example. There are people who um, got injured either by disease or by an accident in the area in the brain called amygdala where we process fear, and they don't survive for too long, not because they, they die from their disease, but because they die from accidents. If you have to cross a street without being afraid, being able to be afraid, okay, it's going to be very complicated. You'll have to do a lot of computations to assess whether it's dangerous or not. You'll have to sort of figure out what's the speed of the car coming toward you and what's the distance that you have to cross and whether it's feasible for you to cross the street while the car is driving in this speed, okay? And what fear does, it, it, it gives you an immediate response that prevents you from doing something dangerous, okay? Embarrassment. In fact, embarrassment is something quite startling that... Uh, um, Darwin himself had an idea why we, why, why do we, if, if you think about embarrassment, this is really startling. Because, as you know, there are some people who tend to be red when they are embarrassed. It's actually there are people that have this inclination, there are other people who don't have this inclination. And you ask yourself, how come precisely when somebody is embarrassed that he or she would tend red? Because when we are embarrassed, the only thing we want to, to happen is that we disappear, right? Okay? That, that, that the floor swallows us, okay? Instead, we are embarrassed and we show everybody that we are embarrassed. Look at us. Look at me. I'm embarrassed. Okay? So where is it coming from? And Darwin's idea about this was, was, was very ingenious. He said... When somebody is embarrassed, usually somebody is embarrassed because he or she did something which is, um, which is not social, which is, which is uh, against the social habit, against the social norm, okay? And when you do something like that, you expect retaliation. You expect 
punishment from your surrounding. Now, by getting, by getting red, you actually respond by saying, okay, I noticed I did something wrong. You don't have to tell me. So you basically inflict punishment on yourself. And when you inflict punishment on yourself, you make it less necessary for other people to punish you. And by that, you are protecting yourself. There is a very nice experiment that was done several years ago that took different individuals, uh, tested whether they have an inclination of getting red when they um, embarrass, then created an embarrassing situation for this individual, faced by many other individuals, and then asked for the responses of the audience about the thing that caused these people to be embarrassed. And what they found out, that when somebody is, is blushing, when somebody is getting red because, because of embarrassment, other people react in, in, in much moderate way, much acceptable manner than when they don't. Okay, so that's actually confirmed. That's, that's an empirical evidence that can confirm the idea that, that in fact, blushing and getting red when you're embarrassed serves uh, serve you uh, to some extent. And, and of course, uh, it's, it's evolution that, that is uh, responsible for it. I talked about the interaction between rationality and emotions. It turns out we know now that the place where this interaction is taking place is this uh, orange area in our brain. It's called the prefrontal cortex. This is the last, this is most recent development of our brain. To some extent, this is the thing that makes us humans different than any other animal. We are the only species that have this part of the brain so developed. And we know that this is the part that involve with this interaction between rationality and emotions because today we can do experiment using fMRI that scan the brain. Okay? And I've been collaborating with people that are doing it. I, I saw the machine. I even go, gone through it once. And you, you are asked to make decision while you're being scanned inside the machine. And the, the machine can actually identify which is the part of the brain that is mostly active in the type of decision that you are making. Now, what do you reckon would be the type of decision that get the most in intensive interaction between rationality and emotion? Anyone dares to suggest or guess? Okay, there are two types of decision that intuitively invoke a lot of connection between rationality and emotions. I think the most, the most relevant are moral decisions. If we think about something, whether something is moral or not, first of all, we have to have some sort of empathy because moral issues very often are associated with some victim. So we have to... Uh, show some empathy to a victim in order to be able to tell whether 
the thing that uh, was done to him or her is, is moral or not, but that's not enough. We're using very often also, we are invoking rationality in, in, in deciding about moral issues because very often we do, we decide about moral issues by way of comparisons, okay? We ask ourselves, is this, is this really immoral? Let's see. There is a, we take a different situation which looks quite similar in which it's more clear that the behavior is immoral there and we can transform or extrapolate from this other example to the first one. This is a very analytic reasoning. And we know that, and we know that when we make decisions on, on moral issues, both type of this, both, both emotions and, and rationality are being uh, activated. And in fact, what we see in the fMRI, in the MRI machine is that this part of the brain is very much activated. Okay, very much activated, uh, uh, which suggests that that's where we process this interaction between rationality and emotions. Okay, what I want to do now, uh, I want to move to uh, a different type of decision-making that very often we regard to be irrational, okay? And say something about, and, and, and look at it from a different point of view, right? And actually assess whether what we regard as irrational um, is indeed irrational. And, 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 and by doing so, I'm going to talk on both biology and economics. And it turns out that there is a very, very interesting interface between biology and economics. Because to a, to a certain extent, animals are making decisions. And to some extent, their decisions are amazingly similar to the one that we are making. And so we can uh, quite often, um, uh, gain some insight from, from looking at animals and see what, how they make the decisions. And what I'm, the kind of decision that I want to, or the kind of actions that I want to allude to are, are what we call altruism or giving. Giving and altruism has long been uh, regarded by economists as being irrational. And to some extent, it was also regarded as, as a paradox by biologists who believe in, in evolutionary theory. If, if you think in terms of evolution, you ask yourself, why should an individual give from his own resources to somebody else? Okay? Um, evolution is about selection, and selection uh, is about survival. And survival is about resources. So the more resources the individual has, the more uh, chance he would survive or his off offsprings would survive. And selection will prefer him. Okay? Okay, so by giving, you actually uh, decrease 
the the gene that that you have the, the or the propensity of the genes that you have and increase the propensity of the genes that 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 this person to whom you give has okay so this is something that bothered for a long time biologists it also bothered uh, in the past less today since uh, the emergence of behavioral economics but in uh, uh, in the past uh, building on the idea that uh, homo economicus is, is trying to maximize resources, maximize profit. Okay, it bothered economists because they said, you know, if you are trying to maximize resources or maximize your profit, why should you be giving anything from yourself to somebody else? Okay, so I want to give some answers to this question and eventually convince you that giving is rational. Although it's driven by emotions, very much by emotions, uh, uh, not directly. I mean, these uh, these are uh, I, I would say moral. I would say it's driven by moral standards that incorporate emotions. Okay, giving is coming direct, often directly by emotions from empathy. When you see somebody suffering and you want to help him or her, you you. You need to give, and giving, when I'm talking about giving, I'm not talking about only giving the money. The giving is also about giving time, attention, resources, okay? Emotional resources, uh, intellectual resources, right? It's much broader than just giving money, okay? So it comes from empathy, but it's, but, um, but it's, it also comes from something more abstract than empathy, something that we call fairness or the principle of fairness that, um, that, that is, is more, it's harder to attribute to a, to, a specific, um, to a specific emotion. So let me start with this startling example. This bird, which is called uh, the white-tailed cockatoo, Okay, is amazing in that they are flying in big flocks in area that makes themselves susceptible to, to being hunted by big birds like eagles. Okay, and what happens there is that one of the males quite spontaneously takes the role of being the guard of the flock. What does it mean to be a guard of the flock? It means two things. First of all, it means that this bird has to fly much higher than the rest of the flock and sort of view the area to being able to spot an eagle coming closer. And whenever, and the second thing is whenever he's spotting an eagle approaching, he shouts very loudly. He causes the entire flock to, sp to spread away. And when somebody is being eaten, it's most likely going to be him, okay? And it's done on pure voluntary manner. I mean, there's no way, there's, you cannot make shifts. There's nobody who is, who is writing down who did it yesterday and who is going to do it today, okay? And then you ask yourself, what, what's, what's, how does evolution design a bird like this in such a stupid way to volunteer for something so dangerous. 
and so difficult. Also, if you fly above the flock, you also, you also spend much more energy than the rest of the flock. Okay? Fascinating. I'll give you an answer in a minute. This is a, another um, um, very fascinating bird that, um, that is very common, uh, very common to fly in, in a, a Syrian African rift, okay? Uh, and it's, um, I remember it as a kid in Israel in the desert, very often we used to love these birds. Um, and they often, uh, they also portray a very, very strange behavior. These birds, when they, <clears throat> when the, sometimes it's, it's, the, remember, these are harsh conditions in terms of, um, of food and, 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 and water. Um, and very often when the male has to, uh, uh the male has to leave, of course, like every male bird, and, and collect food for his offspring. When he comes back to the flock, he won't drop, he won't drop his food inside his own nest alone. He would go and put something of, of what he has into the mouses of the other offsprings, not his, to the other in the other nests. Okay, and the reason why the male goes and and the female stays, the female has to sit on the eggs to warm them up before the offspring comes out. But very often, because it's very harsh conditions, the female will join the male to search for food, and so the eggs will be left in the nest without care. Very often in such a situation, there would be another female coming from a different nest and sitting, sitting to take care on these uh, neglected, neglected eggs, okay? So it's, it's some sort of commune lifestyle, right? Sharing, okay? And again, again, the, 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 the dilemma here is um, why? Why? I mean, why is this bird not taking care only on you know on his off, own offsprings? Why should he spend some resources, especially in an environment like this, which is very harsh, on offspring which is which are not his? Okay. So these are two questions that. Um, biologists were trying to give answers to. And one of the answers is connected to a very, um, very important principle, which is called the uh, handicap principle. Okay? Uh, let, me, let me explain the handicap principle. The handicap principle was meant to explain this peacock tail. The biologists realized for many years that they don't understand why it's there. Okay, it's actually only a burden for the bird. Okay, it prevents the bird from uh, escaping from predators, from uh, chasing its own food, from mating, from moving around. Okay, so why does it have it? Why, is it that, why does it have it? 
And then a researcher by the name of Zahavi was, came out with, idea, with an idea that is very, very similar uh, to, a, uh, to an idea that around the same time was introduced by an economist, famous economist by the name of Spence, Michael Spence, who got the Nobel Prize in Economics um, a few decades back. They worked completely um, individually, uh, without any contact between one another. They never knew each other. One was a biologist and the other was an economist. But they came with the same insight, the same brilliant idea. And what Zahavi said is, this burden is precisely the advantage that offers this peacock. And that's why he called it the handicap principle, right? Because why, wh what do these peacocks are searching for? What, what do they care about? They care about mating, right? They care about females, okay? And females or mating is associated with signals about genetic advantage, okay? So this peacock with a huge tail are capable of telling those potential mates, look, I have such a huge tail and I still do okay. Look at this tiny peacock over there with a tiny tail. He's not doing much better than me. So if I'm doing as good as he does with such a huge tail, that must imply that I have so many other traits in which I'm much better than him. That should make me more attractive. And indeed, this peacock mate more often with more, with more females and also with the better, genetically better females that are in, in the flock. Okay? So now take this insight, take this very simple insight and let's go back to this cockatoo, okay? The same idea, the principle, the handicap principle suggests that this is exactly the reason why this guy is volunteering to be the guard, to be the leader to some extent, right? Not always will, will he be eaten. Right? There's a, very, th there's a very reasonable chance that he will die, but if he doesn't, he goes back to the flock and he gets something in return. Okay? The story with these birds that I told you, the commune uh, birds, is, is, very, is, very, um, is very different here. There is a very simple other story that, is, is a, that biologists are calling kin selection. The basic idea is, of course, what, what the selection is working on is not on the individual. It works on the genes. The gene is the selfish element in the decision-making of the evolution mod, evolutionary model. And to propagate your genes to the next generation, obviously it's, it's, it, it's, not, it's not enough that you will survive yourself. Your offspring have to survive. That's why you provide for your offspring 
and very often you would be willing to die for your offspring, but you also want a more remote relatives to have a chance, right? Because in this desert, your offspring may not survive. And if they may not survive, you still want your cousins, your second cousin, your second nephew to survive. They are less similar to you genetically than your direct offspring, but still they hold part of your genetic profile. And so it's like an insurance policy. If my, if my own children won't survive, at least somewhat remote family members will survive. Okay? So this is, this is the explanation. Okay? Now, think of these, think of these two examples. And I'm going to ask you a very simple question. Let's start with this one. Sorry. Let's start with this one. The story that explains the behavior of this bird. Does it make any sense for you in terms of giving? Giving is, in fact, connects very intimately with the idea of handicap principles. By being able to give or showing that you're able to give, you're actually saying not everybody can give. And again, it's not about giving money necessarily. Not everybody can give attention and emotional resources from him or herself to somebody else. Okay? And by showing that you're giving, you're capable of demonstrating that you can afford it. You can afford to do something that, no, that not everybody can do. Okay? This kicks back to the way society, okay? And not, not necessarily in our, in our environment as human beings, not necessarily in the context of mating, but in a, in a broader constant context of the way uh, society treats us. Our, our colleagues in the workplace, our, of course, our family members, um, the broader environment, including people that we don't know, okay? So this is, this is something that uh, reflects very, very interestingly on, on giving and the rationality of giving in human beings. But this is also has some bearing in human behavior. Okay, I want to tell you about um, a very interesting study that was done by Jim Andrioni. He's an economist from um, Wisconsin in the U.S. And he designed um, a measure of ethnic diversity in different communities across the United States, okay? And the question he posed to himself, are communities which are different in, the, in terms of the level of diversity in the community tend to behave differently in terms of giving? You, you probably know that in the U.S. there is, there is a very common habit during Christmas time, during, uh, just before New Year, to uh, take out your checkbook and write down a check for the community, mo most often for, for, the, for schools, for 
um, um, for health or, or for the several causes for which people are, are donating. And what Jim was asking himself, do we see the same level of donation regardless of the level of diversity within the community? And what you find out that the answer is no. Okay? The answer is no, and we, more specifically, donation in U.S. community, a 10 percentage point increase in ethnic diversity, according to his measure, reduces donation by 14%. Okay? So more homogeneous communities have more, more uh, inclination to give, which, which is very... Very uh, similar to this insight that we got from these behaviors of the, of the birds, right? Okay. I was asked several years ago to join a team in Norway, uh, a team of economists that uh, the Norwegian government decided to put a lot of money into trying to market the... Um, the Scandinavian economy. Do you know that in, in, in Scandinavia, um, there is a very, very developed social network, okay? And there is a very little inequality between individuals. Very different than the rest of the European countries and, of course, the U.S. And, there, and, and it's really startling to... Uh, I visited Oslo and, and very often you would see... Um, uh, a, a, a very standard teacher teaching in an elementary school and a big chief executive in a big company, uh, if you put them together, one next to the other, and you look at their lifestyle, you, you, you will hardly see any difference. They would drive the same car, they would eat in the same restaurant, they would have more or less the same size of home, okay? Um, very different than in many places. And, and it is, uh, and it, and it is mind-boggling. I mentioned tax evasion. You know that in, in, in Norway, the tax margin, the highest tax margin is about 70%. Okay, people, people give 70% of their salary to taxes. Okay, and Norway is also the country with the lowest tax evasion. These people actually enjoy paying taxes. They're looking forward to, their, to, to do their tax form at the end of the year, right? And, and my insight about this, one questions I raised to, to my members in this, in this committee is whether it's really the rules of the economy that makes it work so well or, or or whether it's not uh, the people behind these rules. And the fact that we are talking about a society that grew up from a very small number of, small number of tribes uh, several uh, centuries ago that emerged into, emerged into a state, okay, which was very homogeneous until basically until basically uh, the beginning or the middle of the of last century 
where, where uh, Scandinavia started observing um, a large, um, large inflow of, uh, of immigrants. Okay, so there is something in what we saw here that applies to human beings. Okay, applies to human beings, but today not, not you, you, don't, you don't need to associate it only to ethnicity. It's also to culture, okay? And very often, people uh, make the distinction between it's me and them, not based on ethnic difference, but based on culture, where I'm coming from, what's my religious, what, what's my habits, okay? And so to, to, to be able to generate a behavior of giving, like these birds display, Okay, it's very important to uh, beyond of the rules themselves to create to create an environment or to to it's it's very much up to education, but to create an environment to try as much as possible to. Um, Diminish differences, not to not to uh, emphasize them, but to um, to emphasize the uh, the thing in which we are similar to one another, and not the thing in which we are different to one another. That's eventually boils down to people tendency to give to other people, as we saw from um, Andrioni. Very interesting research. Okay, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm a, how am I doing with time, uh, Nikos? I've still thirty minutes. Okay. Okay, I'm okay. And if you have question, you can disturb me. Okay. I want to. I want to talk now. I'm. I'm. I'm entering a, um, uh, my last. The last phase of uh, of my talk. I want to discuss with you a little bit. Some, some of my research that I conducted that provide answer to some questions that arise from this basic idea that emotions are rational. Okay? One, one question that arises from, um, from this way of thinking is, is the question of can we synthesize emotion? Okay? Are we capable or do we have tendency to um, experience emotions whenever it's strategically beneficiary for us? Okay? So my, my one question I ask from, from my audience very often is to think about you yourself and people around you. And very often I hear stories about yeah, I was very angry about this situation because I knew that my anger would, would, would change the matter. But when, when, we, when I know that it's not going to help me, I become less angry. Okay? One, one insight that I had as, as my role as chairman of an economic department, which um, is a very stressful job, as, as some of you who did the job might know, um, 
but what 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 is the most stressful aspect in being in being a chairman in a department is uh, student complaints. Sometimes they are um, justified, sometimes unjustified. And more specifically, the thing that bothers us, me and my colleagues, very, very often, um, are the rules about appeals against grades of exams. You know that? I'm sure you know. Okay? And we try to be very liberal with it. Actually, the, the most common procedure, then I also ask people across, across very different places around the world how they do it, how they manage it. And, and um, many complained as well, but said that they are compelled to do very liberal with these procedures. A very standard procedure is that the professor and the students are sitting in front of each other. In the middle is the paper, and they are going through the disputed question. The student is, or the professor is explaining why the point have been uh, deducted from a full correct answer. And the student is trying to explain why he or she meant by giving a specific answer. And very often, this situation is extremely emotional. Okay? Anger that then leads to letters to the dean and the provost and the president of the university. But before that, there's a lot of crying taking place. Not a fabricated one, a real one. It's, you, you see the people in Lancaster, Oh, sorry, in Leicester, a place that I was teaching uh, a couple of years ago, um, a student had to be removed to hospital because she fainted during this, this interaction. And it's not that people fake it. And then what we decided to do, we decided different procedures that, are di that basically differ in, in the amount of liberalism we, we allow students, okay? So we moved, for instance, from face-to-face -to, -face to writing and, and um, uh, writing with emails and then writing without emails and then one time writing and then two times writing. With, and the basic insight we gained is that the more restricted you make it, and we also ask people, students' opinion at the end of the year, of course, the more strict you make it, the more happy the students are at the end of the year. And this is basically, and this is a very good example, this, this interaction is, 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 is almost ultimate example for a situation in which people really feel emotional, they're not faking, but they feel emotional because they perceive, to some extent, the advantage of being emotional. The fact that it can change the situation. And if, and if they, very often, if, if they realize that it's not going to help, they, 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 they skip this part of emotions. Okay? Here's an experiment that was published, that a paper of... My, of um, 
my colleague from the psychology department and myself um, on what we call rational emotions. Um, we use skin conductance. Skin conductance is the machine that you can attach to the skin and it's capable of reading your emotional reaction. Using a battery of questionnaire, it can also tell you not only what level of emotional arousal the person was in, but also what kind of emotion he or she experienced, whether it's anger, fear, um, happiness, and so forth. Okay? Now, we created three treatments. In treatment one, we, in all treatments, we, we took individuals in pairs, let them play a game, which eventually they made some payoff. And the payoff was dependent on how well the other person treated you. Okay? In treatment one, we told subject, we have a way to measure your reaction towards your emotional reaction towards the way you were treated um, by your partner. And if we realize that you were angry, the more angry you will be, the higher we will compensate you. We'll give you more money based on the reading of the machine. And the machine is basically reads physiological signals, mainly the conductance of the body, which associated with sweating that we know is higher when people are emotionally arousal, and heartbeats, okay? In treatment two, we told them, we have a way to measure how happy you are with the way you were treated by your counterpart. The more happy you will be, the higher will we reward you. We'll give you more money, the more happy you will be. And in treatment three, we told them, we have a way to measure your emotional reaction, but it's not going to affect the way we are going to pay you. It's only, you're going only to get the money through your interaction with your partner. What we find out is that those people who were motivated to be angry were indeed more angry in, in, in objective terms, in the way their body reacted. Very significantly, those people who were motivated to be happy were only slightly happier than the two other group. Okay? But not significantly. One potential insight here is that, very unfortunately, it's much more easy to get somebody to be angry than getting him to be happy. Would have been nice if we could make somebody happy with just a little bit of money. Little bit of incentives. That doesn't work well, unfortunately. Maybe, perhaps, because anger is a much more necessary, much more effective, much more instrumental emotions than happiness, right? After all, anger um, is meant to move us from a place that we don't like to a different place. It motivates us, okay? Whereas happiness just um, induces us to lie on the beach and, and, have a, uh, and have fun, right? Yes. Okay. I will wrap up. I will wrap up with um, 
a very short video, I will wrap up with a very short video that describe another aspect, and then I will let you ask questions, uh, that, which is the issue of being able to recognize emotions, okay? Being able to recognize emotions is very, very important in terms of this idea of this theory to work, right? And um, I want to take you through a very uh, well-known game uh, was played in the UK for a long time, also in the US, called Split or Steal. This is a, a game, a TV game, that starts with two partners solving trivia questions together, um, raising a lot of money, and then at the end, they have to divide it between themselves. And they use a very simple game that is explained in this video. Pay attention to it. And um, I will end with two sentences um, to explain it. Okay, this is uh, why don't we see it? Life-changing money. Your jackpot today is one hundred thousand, hmm? one hundred and fifty pounds. There you go. Okay. This is serious, life-changing money. Your jackpot today is one hundred thousand, one hundred and fifty pounds. You have one final decision to make. Easy decision. We're now going to play split or steal. I know you're the last two people in the country I have to explain this to. But you have two final golden balls. You each have a golden ball with the word split written inside. You each have a golden ball with the word steal written inside. You will make a conscious choice of choosing the split or the steel ball. If you both choose the split ball, you split today's jackpot of £100,150 and you go home with £50,075. If one of you splits and one of you steals, whoever chooses the steel ball will go home with £100,150. And the person who chooses the split ball goes home with nothing. If you both choose the steel ball, you go home with nothing. Okay. Before I ask you to choose, I want you to look at your two golden balls and make sure you know which is the split ball and which is the steel ball. This is very important. Make sure you don't show each other. Before I ask you to choose, I think you have some talking to do to each other. Stephen, I just hope they weren't puppy dog tears and they were real oh. tears and you were genuinely going to split that one. I am going to split this. That's fifty thousand. Um, I'm just. Um, it's unbelievable. I'm very, very happy to go home with fifty thousand. If I stole off you, every single person there would run over you and lynch me. There was no way I could. I mean, everyone who knew me would just be disgusted if I stopped. When when people watch this, they're not going to believe it. Please. I can look you up. in the Sarah. I can look you straight in the eye and tell you I am going to split. I swear down to you, I am going to split. Okay. This is serious money. 
It is. Sarah, Steve, choose either the split. I'm told that we are running out of time, so I'm not... <laughs> Don't worry. I will show you. But before that, um, I, I want to check your, um, your insight. So uh, let, let's do a, a very quick poll. Let's start with her. And all these those who haven't seen it, um, how many of you think that she's going to choose split? How about still? Okay, now let's take him. How many of you think he will choose split? How about still? Or the steel ball now. Hold it up. We're going on with 50 grand each. I promise you that. Stick or steel? Next time you see next time you see this video, pay attention closely and, and notice that she have she has never committed to choose split. As opposed to him, he said it like five or six times. The most she could say is, if those people here were around us will watch me there, and so forth. That's as much. What we did is we took um, dozens of students and let them see dozens of episodes like this, stopped it exactly at the place where I stopped it with you, and asked them, to guess or to um, predict how these two people will behave, okay? And what we found is that people are capable of predicting way more better than guessing just by reading these, uh, these facial, facial expressions, in voice intonation and whatever, all, all that happens there. Um, we also found that if you look at the way these people were acting in the real game, most of the decisions were the same, either split-split or still-still, which says a lot about the ability to read the other person's mind. Because it makes sense that if you know that the other person is going to choose still, you want to choose still yourself. You don't want the other person go away with the money and leave you nothing, right? So within these 30 seconds, they're capable to get a, a lot of information about what the other person is going to do. Basically by reading the mind of the other, basically by recognizing correctly the state of mind, or if you want the emotion, this is a very emotional situation that the other person display. Thank you very much. I'll stop here and let you answer. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.